0: It seems like a few thoughts were arising (laughs) from the pile. Uh, It was actually a lot of fun to read through all the questions and just to see the amazing range of mind manifestation. So what I try to do is just... uh, group at least some of them uh, together around certain themes. But uh, as you might have noticed, there's a huge pile, so really just be able to uh, talk about some few of them. Um, The first couple of questions, I think points to an area of understanding that's really very critical for understanding our practice and the manifestation of our practice in the world. So I'll just read the questions as they were written, or parts of them. In your opening talk you mentioned not teaching moral behavior was a big mistake, that the exclusive focus on meditation is not sufficient. Are there intentions to act on this that are shareable at this time? And then along with that, I don't know if you remember earlier in the course where I talked about how in the beginning we were sort of hesitant to talk about morality as being part of the path, feeling that's not what people were coming for, and yet seeing what a great lack that was in the transmission. This is another question. In day-to-day life, how does one balance the paradox (coughs) or know what is real and how to act in relation to the self who has to live, survive, relax, be in this world, and the no-self which just knows it's happening and lets it flow. So the paradox of joining the wisdom of selflessness, of emptiness of self, with the need to act responsibly in the world to act as an individual. I think the frame for understanding these questions has to do with the basic Buddhist understanding of relative and absolute levels and that these themes of relative and absolute continually interweave throughout our practice and our lives in the world. On the absolute level, as we've talked often during the retreat, it's really about the understanding of selflessness, that self is a concept that basically this mind-body is a process of the five aggregates, it's empty phenomena rolling on, there's no one there, there's no one home. So that we could call for just to use the designation absolute for that level of understanding, the selflessness. On another level though, on the relative level, we are living as individuals and we're relating from <coughs> that perspective of being an individual in the world with responsibilities. His paradox was summed up really well by the Korean Zen master Uh, Sansanim, Sung San, and in, in really wonderful Zen fashion, he said, There's no right and no wrong. It's the absolute level. But right is right and wrong is wrong. The relative level. And we have to hold both. There is no right and no wrong. It's all just this empty show. It's a dream. It's an illusion. It's like being lost in a movie. When you wake up from the dream, the things that happened in the dream seem quite irrelevant. As enmeshed as we might have been in the dream. That's the absolute. There's no right and no wrong. And right is right and wrong is wrong. On the relative level, which is the level that most of us live on most of the time we do need to take responsibility for our actions because actions have consequences very real consequences in terms of leading to suffering or leading to happiness both for ourselves and others so the challenge I think is holding both simultaneously the problem arises And it happens frequently when we get attached to one perspective or another. We can get attached, totally caught up in the relative, you know, and get so identified with the sense of self and other, and just be living in that world of solidity, of individuality, that it causes a lot of suffering. On the other hand, we can get attached, and this is a kind of spiritual disease, we can get attached to emptiness. We can get attached to the absolute perspective. Oh, it's all empty, nothing matters, there's no one there. Each of those attachments miss the point. So this is our challenge, to have the wisdom of selflessness suffuse our life in the relative world, our life of relationship. And in a very beautiful way, and we come to this understanding, that compassion, which implies morality, it implies non-harming, it implies loving care, it implies taking responsibility, it implies understanding the law of karma, and all of that is really contained within compassion. We come to understand that compassion is the expression of emptiness. The more we authentically realize the selfless nature, the less separation there is, the less boundary. And so our heart-mind is naturally responsive because it's not protecting a self. The relative is the expression of the absolute. We'll, we'll circle back to this theme because holding these two, understanding these two and the union of them is really the key to the integration of meditation and our life in the world. So It's a really important thing. This is somewhat related. If the self is not substantial and created by our thoughts, what is our ego? Is it a movement of the same false self. So sometimes there's just confusion around the word ego because it's used in different ways in the Buddhist terminology and in the world of Western psychology and there's a lot talked about in Western psychology about creating a strong ego You know, and having a healthy ego and so we hear that from the Buddhist world what do you mean have a strong ego? trying to see the illusory nature of the ego. It's using the words differently. Ego in the Buddhist sense refers to the idea that there's some permanent solid being to whom experience is happening. So it becomes the reference point for all experience. It's like we funnel all experience back to a sense of an I, of a self, of an ego. That's the Buddhist use of the word. In psychology, as I understand it, the use of the word ego is very different, and it really has to do with a healthy, strong balance of factors in the mind. The balance does not imply that there's some entity to whom things are happening, it just implies that things are working, different qualities in the mind are working harmoniously together. So the ego in that sense, as balance, appropriate balance of mind, that meaning of ego or ego structure fits very well with the Buddhist idea of selflessness. These next questions were really... uh, Point to a very deep issue. I can barely read my own writing, but your writing. (laughs) Oh, you're out there. (laughs) (laughs) Regarding the deep level of opening, intensive practice, intensive practice facilitates. Do you have any comments on how to help the compassionate heart from getting overwhelmed, overloaded, oversaturated, with with much suffering, with how much suffering there is in the world? Okay, Uh, the next one. There's a fine line between compassion for the suffering of a friend or people in terrible circumstances and anguish? How do you stay on the wise side of that line? This is a crucial question for us and it relates to how we practice now in the solitude of the retreat, how we practice relating to the suffering in the world. How is it possible to open to the magnitude of suffering that's there within ourselves, in our own mind and body, and the immensity of suffering that exists in so many places. I think there are a few key points among many that I'd like to mention. And they're related One of the key elements of not having compassion turn into anguish or not having an open heart and a heart open to suffering be overwhelmed by that suffering is really investigating carefully the difference between Openness to suffering and aversion to suffering, you know, and you have many opportunities throughout the day. Take just some very simple example, you know, which I'm sure you've worked on a lot in these last weeks and will continue to. This is a very simple place to look at this. You know, you're sitting and there's some pain in the body. There's a pain in the knee, a pain in the back. Right there is a chance to really begin to discriminate between the mind that is simply open to the pain, open to the suffering and the mind which in its attempt to be open has aversion to the suffering. The aversion is something extra to the bare experience and it's the aversion the suffering which creates a kind of contraction in the heart and in a larger context turns that openness of suffering into anguish that's when it becomes unbearable it's not unbearable from the side of the open heart it's unbearable because of the deep strong conditioning we have to bring aversion into these intensely unpleasant situations. You see the difference between these two? And it's very delicate. We really have to see see in our own experience the difference. I was just having a a discussion with somebody this afternoon. It was a woman (laughs) who works a lot with victims uh, or survivors of genocide and uh, you know that kind of violence in the world. She travels around the world. And she's uh, been in many places. And I'll read just one little story uh, from a Cambodian that is, is very involved in this work. And she was saying, hearing the stories these stories of intense suffering, and especially hearing it in community, in a circle of people, that something happens, and when we can really hear the story of the suffering and open to it, she said it's as if in the whole circle there is a dissolution of the sense of self. We get out of our own contraction in our own story and it's just it's like openness to the suffering and she said that the most extraordinary thing in that situation is that there is a kind of joy that comes from the intimacy of being open to the suffering that it's not anguish and that's really the feeling or the quality of compassion And it's hard to express because it's somewhat paradoxical. One would think that in compassion we are overwhelmed by the sorrow of the suffering, and yet it's not that. It's In the openness of compassion there is a certain joy that comes from the non-separation. This, I'll just read a little thing from, this is an essay that she wrote it's about this Cambodian young man who I actually met years ago at a conference with the Dalai Lama in San Diego and he spoke. It was, it was all uh, survivors of... Actually, there was a panel on survivors of torture you know, and from the Palestinians and, uh, and the Jews in Nazi Germany and Cambodians and Vietnamese. It was tremendously moving. I mean, these were people who had been through it So the name of this Cambodian guy, now he's around 30, I guess. His name was Arn, A-R-N. For myself, I saw all of my family executed. He, He had lived through the killing fields and the genocide in Cambodia. When I saw babies being smashed, I died myself a million times. I thought it would be better to be born in another life instead of living in a world where there was no love, no compassion. It seems almost unbelievable that I could forgive what happened to my people, but more and more I realize I'm alive. I'm not just alive again because bullets failed to reach my brain or because I wasn't butchered in the awful Cambodian genocide. I'm alive really only painfully, after all these years, because I can love again. I can feel the suffering of others, not just my own, who are enduring the violence of human madness. And then this friend is writing, What irony is contained in this statement, to be alive by feeling the pain of others? I'm alive because I can love again. That's an extraordinary, extraordinary process that he went through because in in the larger story it just tells how he had completely shut down you know all of his feelings and all of his sensitivity just to get through the madness of that intensity of suffering and the being alive coming alive again was opening and being able to love and so we can practice that Hopefully, none of us will need to go through that kind of situation or experience. But we all come face to face with suffering. And the question really is, or the practice for us, is can we learn slowly and gently, you know, and without violence, to be there with the pain, to open to it, to the suffering, whether it's our own or someone else's, without aversion, without closing down, without aggression towards it. Because that just blocks the expression of love, the expression of compassion. And I think that's how we keep ourselves open to suffering, free of anguish. And there's, it feels to me like there's a great um, art, Sensibility in learning how to do this. And there are many, many opportunities. You know, don't don't undervalue the times of suffering that you go through when you're sitting or you're walking or you go through the day, instead of seeing the suffering as a problem, you know, and just wishing it would go away and getting self-judgmental and you know all the trips that we do when we're going through difficulty can we take the times of suffering and acknowledge it and open to it and see what our relationship to that suffering is? Are we letting it in? Are we feeling it and feeling it with compassion? This is one of the great beauties of the retreat precisely because we're not distracting ourselves as we usually do in the face of suffering. You no, know, here we just come face to face. We see it. But we want to use it in this in this very fruitful way. <clears throat> Did the Buddha really mean to offer a trade off between the cessation of delight and the cessation of suffering? Are we supposed to take no pleasure in the things of the world, no delight? So, do we have to give up the light to give up suffering? I think there are a few different issues to address. One is it would be really useful to examine carefully what's contained in the experience that we're calling delight. I mean, is it a simple openness to joy, openness to happiness, openness to pleasure? Or, in what we're calling delight, is there grasping? Is there attachment? Is there clinging? The Buddha is definitely suggesting that if we want to come to the end of suffering, we need to let go of the clinging, let go of the attachment. Why? Because the delight, the joy, and the pleasure is going to change. (laughs) (laughs) And if we're attached to it, we're going to suffer. And if we somehow take that to be the reference point for our aspirations. It keeps us on the samsaric wheel, so we just keep on going after another moment of delight, another moment, and they keep changing, so we need to... We, we're just continuing on this process of becoming. There is no end. And that's one of the meanings of samsara. It's called... I don't know whether this is a literal translation of the Sanskrit word, but it's often been defined as perpetual wandering because we're always in search of fulfillment in that which cannot fulfill us and so there's this endless process of becoming until we wake up and see that it's not in the gratification you know of our pleasure or delight that is going to bring fulfillment but this does not mean that we shut off to it or we close to it. Just as we need to open to the suffering that exists in ourselves and others without aversion, to give expression to the feeling of compassion, we can open to the delight, to the joy, to the happiness in ourselves and in others. And it actually gives expression to great feelings of metta, of love, of mudita, of joy in the happiness of others. So it really comes down to how are we holding it? Are we holding it with openness or are we grasping, are we clinging? That's one way of framing this question. Another way of framing it would be the understanding that there are many kinds of happiness, many levels of happiness. And really, the Buddha taught, you could see the whole Buddhist path as being a path leading through successively more fulfilling kinds of happiness, just as an example. You know, we're all familiar with the happiness of sense pleasures. And they're nice, they give a certain momentary or few moments, you know, of joy, of happiness. The happiness of deep samadhi, of deep concentration, is much more satisfying. And it comes from the restraint or the, the letting go of the happiness of sense pleasures so that we can, the mind can actually get composed enough to drop into a deeper place of stillness. And just kind of as proof that that's actually a much more fulfilling, satisfying kind of happiness. Now when you're in a state, and you've probably experienced even if for relatively short times, but at times when the mind gets just really calm and quiet and still and it's effortless, especially when that's developed, you know, you could sit easily and happily for an hour, two hours, three hours. Deepa Mas sat in samadhi for three or four days at a time. She didn't get up, she just sat there in samadhi. But how many hours in a row could you eat candy bars? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a certain happiness that comes, but... It's not really that fulfilling. (laughs) We quickly get tired of it. So the happiness of the samadhi, the happiness of the concentration is deeper. Deeper than the happiness of concentration is the happiness of insight. As we really are developing a very strong and penetrating wisdom and insight into the process, there's a different flavor of happiness. You know, which is really the happiness or the, the taste of liberation, or the, the scent of liberation. You know, and then successively comes as the mind actually reaches states of realization, or comes to that place of realization. And so even this question of delight, it's not so much because sort of the giving up of delight, it's actually opening to greater experiences of joy, greater experiences of happiness. But mostly in our culture many of these other kinds of happiness are just not talked about and they're not even known. You know? and so mostly we just kind of play around on really what's the most superficial level of happiness. And it's not, I mean all of us, we're living you know, mostly in the world and we're engaging with our senses and it's really fine. But I think it's a question of seeing it clearly and not being seduced or driven or attached. So Even though you may not always be experiencing it this way, we really are on the path of delight and it just, for some strange reason, the path winds through a lot of suffering. Okay. There, here, there were a few uh, just noting questions. Uh, sometimes, at a loss for words when trying to note an action, such as each step in putting on a sweatshirt, I find myself searching for a word. Is it best to be more generic, that is, pulling, or more, or more specific and object-related, that is, brushing, combing, etc. And this is another question. Could you speak about skillful and unskillful use of noting all day? Also, between sitting and walking, what factors need to influence skillful use of choice to focus or open up awareness, to focus awareness or open it up? Like when getting too scattered, say, choosing to narrow the focus. In terms of the noting, you know, just the, the mechanics of it. I think you really need to experiment. There are times when making a general note really serves. I mean, I've noticed this, for example, uh, sometimes in doing a complex activity, uh, you know, where there are many, many movements involved putting on clothes or taking a shower, whatever other complex activities you do. (laughs) If there's just a general note, you know, uh, it serves because it just, it's almost like we're, we're taking a bird's eye view and we're just being present and watching ourselves in that whole activity. At other times, if you really slow down and you're breaking up the activity very precisely and mindfully and you're in that mode, you know, of really careful attention, then Noting each movement and each touch sensation could be helpful, could help create that greater sense of precision. I wouldn't think of it in terms of a right way and a wrong way. It really depends on the energy in the moment. Uh, the reference point for all of these kinds of questions is what keeps you most mindful. You know, if you're trying to be very precise with every single movement, but you find that the mind is just rebounding into a lot of thought and discursiveness, you might find that you actually get much more present and settled by noting in a bigger way, a more generic note for the whole activity. And the reverse. Sometimes you could be giving a general note and just be totally disconnected. You really need to focus down. So make mindfulness the reference point. This is a kind of uh, ongoing investigation so you're not going through the day mechanically but you're really attending to noticing whether or not you're being mindful and how strong the mindfulness is. This is actually the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the Dhamma. Because in that foundation, in the sutta, it talks about mindful of the hindrances, mindful of the eightfold path, mindful of the four noble truths, mindful of the factors of enlightenment. And one of the most beautiful things in that part of the sutta and it's it's tremendously reassuring. Especially when it when it's going through the factors of enlightenment, the sutta describes it and the bhikkhu, the yogi knows whether mindfulness is present or not, whether concentration is present or not, whether joy is present or not. And I love that because it's very non-judgmental. No, it's not saying, oh, yogi notices concentration is not present and judges themselves. (laughs) It's not saying that. (laughs) It's just noticing. It's like you're going through the list. Okay. Mindfulness is here it's not here or you know, through all of those factors, so it's really a way of just being present for how things actually are in any moment in terms of choiceless awareness and a more focused awareness again, I think the criteria needs to be how mindful you know and It's also a question of modulating the quality of the effort. You know, and, um, I think you know this. <laughs> you know, it's just to be watchful. If you're, if you're very narrowly focused on the breath and you're getting really tight and tense, it may be good to open it up a little bit. If you're quite open and it's choiceless and things are just coming and going and you feel like you're getting spaced out, that you're not really there in each moment's experience, Notice that, become mindful, oh, not present, not concentrated. So then bring it in to a little narrower focus. So you can really play with your practice, making mindfulness the criteria. Then there were a whole bunch of questions about working with different emotions You mentioned that fear is often a root emotion which underlies others. I've recently had a taste of this in practice, experiencing long periods of aversion on one occasion. The anger shifted to fear, which being known clearly led to a sense of letting go and release. Could you elaborate more on the role of the emotion of fear in the process of being caught? opening and experiencing freedom, especially in light of the fact that I don't recall anywhere in the Buddhist classical teachings where fear is given a more central role in others than other emotions. Um, I think the point here is not so much to highlight fear as being necessarily any more predominant than anything else. We're all conditioned somewhat differently but it does point to um, an interesting inquiry in practice when we feel caught in something, when we feel caught in some emotion or even some very repetitive thought pattern, when it's not just washing through, when it's not arising and just passing away, but when there's that feeling of being really caught and identified, it can be helpful very often just to step back and see if there's some emotion or mind state underneath that is unacknowledged, that is actually the source or the the underground spring which is feeding. This just relates to the next question that was written. Please say a few words about skillful means to work with self-righteous anger. Okay, so that, that's a good example, as well as fear being a possible undercurrent, underground spring, feeding anger. Very often, you know, something can happen, some situation can happen. We feel very angry, very self-righteous, because we're right, and that person shouldn't have done whatever they did, if we're simply noting anger, 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 very often it doesn't unhook us, because we're not noting the feeling of self-righteousness. And so while we may be mindful of the fact that anger is present, we're not mindful of the fact that we're identified with the self-righteousness underneath, and so it keeps feeding the anger, and we just stay caught in it. It's helpful to just step back, as I say, with recurrent patterns or patterns that feel locked in, just step back, it's as if we ask the question, okay, what's happening here? You know, what's, what might be here emotionally, some emotional level, that is unnoticed? It might be fear, it might be self-righteousness, it might be self-pity, it might be anything. And it's really a way of learning to free ourselves you know, from the grip of whatever the particular pattern is. Does the concept of grace exist in Vipassana? Or are all spiritual happenings attributed to karma alone? I want to just approach that question from two different sides. One was a response. Uh, that Chungpa Rinpoche once gave to a question Does grace exist in Buddhism? Does the concept of grace exist? And I don't know that you've read much of Chungpa Rinpoche's works, but he was really brilliant with his use of language and the translation of, sort of Buddhist ideas into uh, English, an English idiom. So somebody asked him this question in a group, does grace exist you know, in the Buddhist teachings? And he just thought for a moment. And then he said, Patience is grace. And it was just kind of a fresh take. Because usually we think of grace as you know, coming down from on high. And by some miracle maybe it happens to us. But he was really turning it around and seeing that grace comes from the inside, not from the outside. And that... the grace... and we could call that intuitive opening, intuitive insight, intuitive awakening to something. It really comes out of the field of patience. You know, where we're sitting... And we're relaxed back into the moment and the mind is not grasping, it's not expecting, it's not wanting. Those are the forces which prevent that moment of grace, that moment of illumination from happening. And I think it was just a a beautiful turning of the understanding back to within ourselves rather than necessarily relying on some other being to deliver it. Now, in certain Buddhist traditions, more in some than in others, uh, there is a tremendous sense of and practice of guru devotion and kind of the grace that comes from the energy of the guru and great beings and great bodhisattvas. So that is in there, particularly, for example, in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, But I think for us... uh, really find that openness, that place of openness in ourselves that allows for the grace to manifest is really our practice. And even in the system, Tibetan system of guru devotion, which is very highly developed in that lineage, in those lineages, it's taught that the absolute nature of the guru is the nature of one's own mind. And so there are a lot of intermediate, skillful means, but it comes back to that realization as well, that it's really opening to our own nature, most fundamental nature of mind. But that is the true guru. How do we come to it? through the fullest appreciation of what patience means. You know, and patience is not endurance. Patience doesn't mean, yeah, I'll be patient with this pain. Patience is that quality free from wanting, free from expectation. Can you comment on planning that has dukkha in it and planning that doesn't? Or does planning always have dukkha in it? (laughs) Uh, uh, It goes on, but that's the essence of the question. It's really a good question, I think, because as I'm sure you've noticed often, uh, planning seems to be a (laughs) a very common tape in the mind. I think the dukkha of planning, as with so many other thoughts, is when we forget that it is just a thought in the moment. There's nothing wrong with planning thoughts. Sometimes they're appropriate. There are times in our lives when we need to plan for something. The problem is, as we do with so many other tapes in the mind, we forget that it's just a thought in the present moment. And so we create this mind world, this mind bubble. It's just like a cartoon character, you know, with this bubble, and all the, all the thoughts in this bubble. It's like we create these bubbles sitting here and then jump into them and live in the world of the bubble. Whatever it is, you know, whatever we might be planning or remembering, you know, whatever the particular pattern of thought is, with all the attendant feelings and emotions. And, you know, maybe we're planning with tremendous excitement or anticipation or fear or anxiety. or. But what's really happening in the moment? It's just a thought. We're just sitting here. Nothing's going on. I mean, isn't it amazing? The mind worlds which we continually create, get lost in, get all worked up about, and all that's happened is between one breath and the next, certain thoughts have come and we haven't recognized them as thoughts. I mean, this to me is one of the most astounding things about life—that some huge percentage of the time, we're, leave, we're living in a made-up world. You know, and the relief that comes when we can see that—when we can—it's not to necessarily stop the thoughts from happening, although, you know, at times they do slow down. And, But more important is to see them for what they are, not to be seduced by the illusion of them. And that, of course, is our practice. We need to do it again and again and again because the habit is so incredibly strong. This is uh, somewhat related. Could you please talk about the structure nature of controlling mind and some skillful means in working with deeply embedded repetitive patterns of thought? For all of us obsessives out there. Um. I think it's interesting to look at what feeds repetitive thought patterns. Okay, we, we get caught in a particular pattern that comes again and again and again and again. If it has that repetitive quality, there's probably something which is fueling it, which is feeding it. And two areas you might look at and just investigate to see if one of them might be the fuel. One of them is what I mentioned just a little earlier about seeing if there's some underlying mind state or emotion that's going unnoticed. Just as a simple example, maybe for obsessive planning thoughts, maybe there's a feeling of worry or insecurity or apprehension. And if we're not just relaxed back and acknowledging that, and being mindful of that in the moment it could be generating all of these thoughts endlessly that's one area to look the other place to look would be in how the mind is relating to the thoughts relating to the pattern because one of the greatest discoveries for happiness in our lives is understanding that resistance to what we don't like strengthens it. And so if there's, a, if there's a repetitive pattern and there's aversion to it, there's judgment of it, there's resistance to it, there's wishing it would stop, all of that aversion is actually keeping the pattern going. You now it's like two, two playing cards resting against one another. When they're leaning against one another, they actually give each other support. You take one away, the other falls down. There's the repetitive thoughts, there's the aversion or judgment. As long as those two are there, they're supporting each other. Take away the judgment, the energy for the repetition begins to diminish. It's so ironic that trying to get rid of what we don't like is what keeps it there. You know, So th- this is kind of like a little paradox that as soon as we understand, we actually come to a skillful realization of a skillful approach. Oh, something's there we don't like. Can we be accepting of it? Simply know, yeah, this is here. Repetitive thoughts are here. No problem. And in the non-resistance, they begin to diminish. One way of fostering this level of acceptance, and I've mentioned this at different times, but it was a technique I found very useful for the judging mind. Because there were periods in my practice where the judging mind was rampant. I just had a judgment about everybody. And the dining room is a great garden of judgment, <laughs> you know, because you're just sitting there, and, or I was just sitting there anyway, <laughs> you know, pretending to be mindful, but really watching everybody. So after some time, as I watched this parade of judgment, what I started doing, I just started putting a tag on every judgment. And the tag I put on was, the sky is blue. <laughs> and so, oh, that person is taking too much food. The sky is blue. You know, they're walking too fast. The sky is blue. I don't like what they're wearing. The sky is blue. Because the sky is blue is just a neutral thought. If that thought came into the mind, there'd be no problem. That person is walking too fast. It's equal to the sky as blue in that it is simply a thought arising in the mind. And the only thing that gives it power is becoming identified with it or judging it for having arisen. When we can relate to those thoughts as being the same as the sky as blue, there's no problem. We don't have to stop judging or stop whatever particular pattern plagues you. It's really just seeing the basically empty, insubstantial nature of all thought. The content in this context is irrelevant. But these thoughts, they're like coming through the mind, and each thought has a little hook on it. And we're like fish. oh, the thoughts are bait and we just keep biting so you might imagine that could be another image you could play with thoughts with these hooks dangling don't bite (laughs) Suzuki Roshi had a wonderful line in Zen Mind Beginner's Mind he said don't be bothered by your thoughts let them come and let them go you know but we bite a lot uh, so it's just to see it you know and and through the practice we learn not to bite so much and just to let them come through without judgment without aversion without getting lost in them Okay, there were a whole bunch of questions, and maybe these will be the last that I'll talk about. About... Vipassana, Dzogchen, Zazen, how it all fits together, what's the difference, are they the same, all of that. So I'll just read one of the questions because it kind of highlights... Uh, the others. Uh, You just, I love these (laughs) rolls. You describe the nature of mind as vivid and empty, etc., though we miss it because its nature is obscured through craving. Can you talk more about how we realize the nature of mind? To see craving seems obvious at this point. The contraction around desire feels quite recognizable. And something, uh, sounds are recognizable, sensations of the breath are recognizable. Please talk more about how one goes from seeing sights, sounds, thoughts, desires, to realizing the vivid, empty nature of mind. Is the non clinging mind a synonym? for this vivid nature of mind. Or can one experience a non-clinging relationship to experience but still be bound by the experience of perception itself? Okay, so just to talk about uh, that question of how we can practice experiencing what is called the you no, know, the vivid, empty state. There's, there's another phrase from the Dzogchen language, which, and a lot of... Uh, let me back up a minute. Uh, when I started doing you know, that practice after a long time of Vipassana, uh, just because of friends, thought you know, it might be interesting for me to do it, at first I was really in a conflict, you know, it's like, who's right? And because the metaphysics were quite different. The systems, the language was quite different. And I just tormented myself about who's right, who's wrong. And this, for quite a while, I was on a two-month retreat, and so the first month was like that. And then I, I had a, really, a wonderful realization that brought it all together and created so much harmony in my understanding when I realized that all metaphysical systems, you know, whether it's the Burmese model of the Abhidhamma, the Dzogchen, Tibetan teachings or whatever, all could be seen as skillful means for liberation rather than as statements of absolute truth. Because if we see them as statements of truth, and sure, if you have two different systems and they're saying different things, you have a conflict. If you see them all simply as different ways, different skillful means for freeing the mind from attachment. Yeah, there's this set of metaphor, of imagery, of language, that helps free the mind from attachment. There's this model in language frees the mind from attachment. The obvious thing to do is to get free of attachment, (laughs) not to create this battle and this war between systems. So that was really helpful. And so then it all came together. Instead of seeing it as even two different things, it was the same practice. Came back to the same practice of not clinging, not clinging to anything. The language you know, is, is used differently, but that's fine. We can really be enriched by different expressions and different metaphors. Okay, so, all of that is a little bit of a preface for one of the expressions from the Dzogchen tradition, which just I find is a very wonderful and illuminating expression for understanding the nature of the mind is innate, the innate wakefulness. The, the, the nature of the mind is innate wakefulness. And I like it, I like that expression, because it reminds us that it's not that we're trying to get something, it's not that there's something out there which we don't have and we have to find, but rather the practice is coming back to what's already here, to the innate wakefulness of mind, that gets obscured by attachment and grasping and clinging. And so what we need to do in each moment is to simply practice not clinging. Okay. One way of... And there are so many approaches to this, and I'll be talking at greater length about this, so let just... Few few words. I mean, one of the way to come back to that place of not clinging is by paying attention to the impermanent nature of things. Because the more you see things coming and going, the less the mind is attached. As you're seeing the impermanence, really notice the quality of the mind. In the whiz that's... Notice the quality of the mind that's there when there is the wisdom of seeing impermanence. Because you will experience the mind that is not clinging at that time. So it becomes very experiential. From another side, and this is something, I can't remember whether I've talked about in this retreat yet or not, but it could be very helpful. It was helpful for me. Framing the knowing aspect of the mind in the passive voice. So for example, the breath being known, thoughts being known, sensations being known. That in our experience, moment after moment, things are being known. One object after another is arising and being known. The reason that frame was so helpful for me was that it took the I, the self, out of the knowing. It wasn't. I wasn't framing it in my language as I'm knowing a sound. I'm knowing a sight. I'm knowing a thought. Take it out. Took it out of that dualistic way of perceiving, and it was just moment after moment things being known. Just as a way of practicing this, you might you might play uh, in the walking meditation, which is where I really first got into this way of. Seeing things, the walking is a wonderful place because there's a very obvious, effortless flow of sensations as you walk. You know, it's just the sensations of the movement. So as you walk and you're really there, carefully, you know, with the with the experience of the the river, the furlough, the current of sensations, and Be right there with each sensation being known, moment after moment. And they're known spontaneously. You don't have to do anything except be undistracted. You're not creating the sensation, you're not creating the knowing. It's all happening by itself. It's a miracle. It's a total miracle. Sensations being known, there's no one there knowing. That's, that's the value of putting it in this passive voice. It's not that there's the knowing or watching the sensations. It's just the sensations being known. And then, once you get familiar with that way, you could then sort of explore the mystery or the magic a little bit more and just hold the question, well, known by what? And when you find the answer, tell me. <laughs> I mean, it, it really, it, br- it brings us right into the mystery of consciousness, moment after moment. It's not something, you know, kind of subtle that you have to wait until you're super concentrated, whatever, to get a glimpse. It's, it's right here in the, in the utmost simplicity of a movement. You know, the sensations are being known. Well, just be right there in that happening. And it's an an amazing unfolding mystery. And then you can take it from the walking. Because that's what's happening moment after moment there's another appearance being known. Sensation, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a thought. And you really begin to get a sense of kind of this magical mystery tour. No one's doing anything. And what it takes is being undistracted. So that's what we're practicing. The mind will get pulled out and will bite on the hooks. and So we practice again dropping back into that space of innate wakefulness in which things are being known effortlessly, spontaneously. So there's a tremendous interest because this actually is our life. Let's sit for a few minutes. Right now, with the breath, just be with the sensations of each breath being known. And now you can wait another four weeks to think of other questions. You can just rest in the great innate wakefulness of mind.